Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Joel Manegro of Placeholder. Joel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. So, Joel, I'm excited to start uh, by getting into the placeholder thesis that you wrote uh, a few years ago. But, uh, and, and you start with sort of this, this backdrop, uh, sort of setting the historical context for, for why you're so excited about crypto. And, and one of the things you talk about is how each new technological revolution uh, creates new business models that commoditize the old, or creates new technology that, that commoditize the old business models. So I'm curious if you can get into that. But also, I'm, I'm curious, are, are there sort of natural laws around the evolution of, of centralizing and decentralizing uh, technologies or business models over, over time? It, it's my understanding that up until very recently, you know, most technologies have o- only led to increasing c- centralization. I, I just read mm-hmm. The Sovereign Individual, and it says that, uh, or predicted in the 1990s, that only now we are starting... Uh, that, that trend is starting to be reversed. And so I'm curious how you see sort of the, the evolution between centralization and decentralization over time as it relates to technology. And if, if it is being reversed, why now? What would lead to that? Sure. So starting with a, a bit of the history, it, it's really a history of information technology as, as its own technological revolution. And then the different cycles that we've seen within information technology, if we consider the industry being born in, say, the early 1950s when the um, the transistor came along and we started building these information systems or more, um, you know, what, what we think of the the earlier computers. Um, if you if you set that as the start, we've kind of gone through a few kind of major cycles. First, uh, what what I like to call the hardware era was that that period in time that started. With the commercialization of the micro, or not the microprocessor, the transistor, in the 50s and 60s, and that was a wave that um, IBM rode to the top to become the world's largest computer company. Uh, what what transistors did is they completely collapsed the cost of building electronics. So electronics had been existing for a while, electricity existed for a while, and we had already figured out that we could use it to build information systems and communication systems. You know, things like the telegraph and the telephone and things like that operated with with some of these technologies. But before the transistor, we had to build these machines with uh, something of they were vacuum tubes at the time to kind of move information and, and electricity in, in various ways that were very fragile and very expensive. And, and the transistor came along as a kind of uh, openly available commodity technology that everyone had access to. And all of a sudden building electronic chips uh, became really, really cheap. We got the consumer electronics boom, microwaves, fridges, all of that stuff. Then we also got computers or the early mainframes uh, riding off of that technology. And so we, we got the, the emergence of a new industry, the, the computer industry at scale. Um, and so we had a, a period of innovation in the 50s where a bunch of large companies and startups kind of got into the computer game. And as I mentioned, IBM, uh, stood out and 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 became the giant of of that industry. Towards the end, there, towards the end of the '60s, the concern that IBM was too big and and definitely a giant. They used to call it Big Blue. Uh, was was now part of society, very much in the same way that we're now concerned about Facebook and Google and so on. 
So IBM had risen to dominance and um, now the, the, the public sentiment had turned against it and that gets reflected in the press and uh, gets reflected in uh, government action. Um, so there was a famous lawsuit that lasted uh, 13 years, which was the US versus IBM uh, lawsuit that started, um, I wanna say in 69 thereabouts. But it wasn't until the microprocessor came along in 1971 that IBM's market power started to dwindle. So what happened in 71 is Intel created the microprocessor and the microprocessor did essentially the same thing that transistors had done two decades before where uh, IBM's business model was based on proprietary hardware where uh, they had uh, built their own platforms and systems and had iterated on them. We went through a series of of um, kind of the uh, IBM platforms that were very consolidated and IBM provided the entire suite of services. It was the heart, it was the hardware, the software, the integration. These were big machines and IBM kind of did that all uh, custom for you if you were a bank or a government or a university or so on. And the microprocessor came along and switched from special purpose computing to general purpose computing in a way. And from the microprocessor, we got the PC standard. And so what the microprocessor did was introduce a new standard, um, a new open standard that allowed people to build computers for much cheaper. Um, and that is what ended up commoditizing IBM's business model because we went from essentially one large computer manufacturer. There was a joke that it was IBM and the seven dwarfs because it was larger than the seven largest uh, or the, than the seven next largest competitors combined to having dozens or hundreds of PC manufacturers over the decades that, that followed the microprocessor. And then as a result of that, we also got the software industry now on top of this new PC ecosystem. Uh, we got a new cycle on top because what happened is that the, the hardware business commoditized uh, because of the microprocessor, but then all the value moved to the software business, the stuff on top. Um, and then we got a similar kind of progression where Microsoft and you know started out as a startup with a bunch of other independent software vendors and and, and people trying to build operating systems. Microsoft became the winner, um, and their business model was based on proprietary software and proprietary distribution. So they had contracts with PC manufacturers to distribute the OS and with retail stores and so on. And similar story happened where uh, Microsoft grew to dominance, had this proprietary business model, and it wasn't until the web and Linux came along in 1991 that a new open standard or platform became available for people uh, to build upon uh, that directly challenged Microsoft's business model of proprietary uh, hardware and distribution. Now we had free software and, and free distribution via the internet. So we saw kind of a similar type of progression and dynamic, and we're seeing it today now, uh, another 20 years later, with the Googles and the Facebooks, because the you know the web and Linux came along, provided a new platform that challenged Microsoft's business model. Then the value moved again one layer up to the networks and the data, uh, which is what makes Google, Facebook, and so on valuable. Uh, and now we're at that stage where public they've gotten too big. Public sentiment is turning against it, and we're seeing it in the media, and we're seeing it in the way governments are reacting to these platforms. And then again, right around this time, we're seeing now new platforms, new standards, and what we're seeing in crypto uh, emerge in a way as a response to the consolidation and the centralization that's happening on the web. Yeah, and the I'm curious, uh, and I'll give some examples of 
where if there was like a natural law around centralization or reverse decentralization over time would be helpful. For example, you know, over time, will we all be speaking English or will there sort of be, you know, thousands mm. of languages that will continue to fragment or, or you know, one currency or, or thousands of currencies? Right. Or because I just read The Sovereign Individual, will we have a, you know, thousands of Singapores and Hong Kongs and Israel yeah. or, you know, one big global, <laughs> you know, do we coalesce? <laughs> how do you, and what, what determines, you know, that? Yeah, you know, it, that's, that's a fascinating question because there's, there's one, there's so many ways to look at it. I'll, I'll, I'll start with one and then go to the others. My, when it comes to investing in business, I like to uh, see, look at the problem through the, through the eyes of markets. And what I, what I see is that when there is consolidation in a market or concentration as a, as a result of scale of any, any winner, who achieves economies of scale faster than the others uh, or, or, or similar is that all of a sudden it becomes really expensive to compete. It, innovation becomes expensive uh, in the sense that if you, if, if it's the 1960s and you're trying to start a computer business, forget it. There's no way you can compete with IBM. And if you are, if it's the eighties uh, or the nineties and you're trying to start a, uh, an operating system business, forget it. You're not, you're not going to win against Microsoft. Um, and so the cost of innovation uh, increases in the, in the current market structure, but the, the demand for innovation or the, you know, I don't know what, what we should call it, but the, um, the pace of innovation, the desire, the drive for innovation, the force of innovation does not stop. And what, what ends up happening is it gets funneled to places where there, there, there aren't any incumbents or there isn't uh, a force that prevents you from uh, growing and establishing a position. And so it, it's almost as if uh, entrepreneurs uh, end up moving to the new platforms where they can actually innovate and they can innovate for cheaper uh, rather than try and build under the current paradigms. And so the way that's happening on the web now is now it's really expensive to try and compete with Google or Facebook and consumer services. And that gets reflected in the amounts of money that a startup has to raise on the web today to even get started is completely absurd. Um, and that shows up, you know, in the cost of talent that shows up in, in, in a bunch of different ways. And that ends up coming back down to us, the investors, because it ends up uh, changing the economics uh, in the sense that but if, I, if I'm investing on the web, I have to put a lot more money to work to have a decent chance at success. And even then, it, it's, it's far from guaranteed. And, and we've kind of seen how VC has has transformed over the last 10 years to, to levels that kind of feel unreasonable. But over here in crypto, we see a lot more space for opportunity and growth and entrepreneurs are doing the same. So they're moving to the new platform. So from the point of view of business, I think that's what drives uh, these cycles of expansion and consolidation. When there's too much consolidation in a market, all the values concentrated in the incumbents and then all the startups and all the entrepreneurs can't, or the, and their investors can't create any value there. And so investment activity and innovation activity moves to uh, more open fields. Um, so that's, that's how I think about the markets. As far as society is concerned, you know, there's, we, we can open the kind of philosophy books here on centralization because you could, you could say the world is getting more centralized, but you could also say that it's getting more decentralized. And this is where it gets kind of fussy and relative and subjective. But the, the English example is kind of a brilliant one because I don't think centralization is bad. 
uh, in and of itself, there's a lot of benefits to, to centralization. It's actually very useful for Google to be quite centralized because all of their services work very well together. It's kind of seamless and it increases the value to consumers. Um, and so that's why, you know, calls to break up the tech giants are kind of a little difficult because you, you break them up, you, you're, you're going to make it, make it harder for consumers. What's problematic is ownership uh, and control uh, of, of, of ownership. And so maybe one way to think about it is functional centralization is desirable uh, in, in the way that, for example, all of us speaking English is a kind of functional centralization that's desirable because it increases the efficiency of our transactions and communications. What's undesirable is uh, centralized control of resources. Um, and I think that's that's really what uh, is driving discomfort. And um, it, it's not so much that we don't want these services to exist, is that it makes us uncomfortable that they're owned by one company uh, that is controlled by a relatively small group of people uh, and so on. And so what, what I think we're doing with crypto is kind of mirroring, um, not mirroring, but uh, kind of playing with those ideas where we get to have these decentralized networks that are functionally centralized in the sense that they provide you these discrete specific services, but they are, uh, in terms of how they're organized, they're more decentralized. So there's less of that element of centralized control. Totally. And so if you had to make a pr- prediction for how it would happen with languages, for example, how, how do you think we should think about that? I think a single language is ideal. And you know, I'm pausing because I'm, I'm Dominican. My primary language is Spanish. I grew up in a few places and ended up learning a few languages. And English is by far the most useful language in the world, perhaps followed by Spanish. But it is incredible how, how much of a leg up you get in life when you know English. And I say this coming from a country where you know, it's, a, it's a very poor country and uh, something that actually delineates a lot of social lines or class lines in, in societies like that ends up being language. And so uh, that is, you know, if we, if we talk about language specifically, centralization in language is a very desirable thing in my eyes. There's a very clear divide in, 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 in terms of the scale of the opportunities that you can access when, when you speak English, for example. And I'll just focus on English because it's, it's even the kind of thing where the number of Wikipedia articles in English are orders of magnitude larger than the ones in other languages. And so if you just use that as a metric, just the volume of information that's unavailable to you if you don't speak the most common languages, I'll just go with big. Yeah. And, and, and how about, uh, you know, currencies or, or maybe even just crypto in specific, how, how should we think about, you know, what should be centralized versus what should, shouldn't be, you know, centralized? Mm-hmm. Should you should there be you know, centralized applications on top of decentralized protocols or what, what's the you know obviously lots of currencies I, I guess you'd you'd prefer although I'm not sure how do you think about it? Well, in terms of the applications, I think you can have all the combinations and they they work uh, for different purposes. So I, I I came up with this quadrant that um, kind of when it comes to the architecture of applications and systems. You can think of the, I think the x-axis goes from centralized production to decentralized production. And the y-axis goes from non-custodial data to custodial data models. And I I put the web uh, in the centralized and custodial quadrant. Uh, So that's what you would think as a completely centralized application. And I put crypto uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum or, you know, full crypto on the opposite of end of the spectrum being decentralized in production 
and non-custodial data models. So these are the most lightweight uh, systems. But then you also have the other two quadrants. You can have applications that are centrally produced but non-custodial. Um, so, for example, uh, if you think of USDC, uh, which is Coinbase's and Circle's fiat-backed stablecoin, it's a centralized service, um, but it has these these kind of non-custodial crypto elements to it. And so that that is what I kind of think of as a centralized non-custodial service. And then you can potentially also have uh, decentralized and custodial services, which in, in that I actually don't know how that would work. So um, I, I, I haven't explored that idea too too deeply. Um, but the, in terms of why, when you would want one versus the other, I, I think it varies a lot by, by market. But the, the heuristic I like to use is that the more important it is for a system to be self-sovereign and independent from any uh, outside influence, the more you want to be in the decentralized, non-custodial realm. But there are certain applications that certainly benefit from, from other combinations. Now, when it comes to currencies and tokens, that I don't have a strong opinion on. Uh, there's, there's one side of me that goes, well, it's okay to have, there's many reasons why you would want to have many, many competitive instruments. And in, in one way in which we may be able to solve these, the, the kind of coordination issues is through either highly efficient markets where you can use your currency, I can use mine. And if we have efficient exchange mechanisms that can manage that those those interfaces very efficiently it may not matter and you know that that is a potential future where you know you kind of uh, use the you, you hold the assets that you want and when it comes to uh, engaging in a transaction the systems in the background make sure that you get the currency that you want uh, and I spend the currency that I want and that's kind of what we have already with credit cards and debit cards if you think about it when you travel abroad and swipe your credit card a bunch of systems in the background are making those transactions for you so that you don't have to think about it um, so we may end up in a similar place with crypto but ultimately I think um, currencies are a really small part of what crypto is uh, even store value is I think a really small or a relatively small part of what crypto is um, I'm more interested in what other kinds of, of things we can do with tokens that go beyond payments. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into that. But to, to ask one more on the decentralization, you, you mentioned in an interview over a year ago with uh, Laura Shin that the idealist in you believes that we'll have a larger number of networks than than people expect mm. over mm-hmm. time. Do you, do you still believe that or is that still the idealist position? Um, I still believe that. Um, and it's still idealist, which means I'm still an idealist, which is good. Um, <laughs> it can be bad sometimes, but where, where I would say the nuance is, is what, what is a network uh, at, at, in this case? And if it's, if, it's raw, if it's raw blockchain, if we want to get technical uh, and talk about raw blockchains or you know, layer zero, layer one, what, whatever your favorite term is, um, then I don't, I don't think we will end up with as you know, I think we end up with four to six large uh, networks that that everything that we have multiple networks on top of. And so it's to me that when I say network in that context, I'm, I'm talking I'm referring less to, uh, say, blockchains or ledgers and more to uh, or, or I'm thinking more broadly, including things like a DAOism network, for example. Right. And so, you know, there can be lots of tiny little DAOs. And I, I think of all of those as, as networks. 
you, you've made some comparison between crypto networks and and governments or, or countries. What do you think? What's the best way to to think about that? Yeah. Um, so this this analogy came up uh, a, a few years ago. The the it started out with realizing that the the core developers of a of a crypto network uh, or, or of a sovereign crypto network are kind of like the executive branch of of, an, of a national government, where they they write the code and they kind of you know execute the things and make proposals and, and all that, but they can't force the network to adopt the changes that they want necessarily. They have to go through a, a governance process to do that. That involves getting the other constituents on board or getting the constituents of the network on board and, and starting to see how that ended up feeling a little bit like a Congress or a parliament where you can have the executive branch kind of on the day-to-day making things work. But when it comes to making significant changes to the protocol, say amending the constitution, uh, that has to go through uh, through a separate process. And, and that, that kind of started uh, uh, unraveling in different ways. You know, the idea that uh, the core development team as the executive branch, then you have the users as the kind of constituent citizens. Uh, but then, you know, especially when you get into proof of stake systems, then you have these kind of representative uh, systems. But generally, the notion that a crypto network is managed a lot more like a community uh, and a country than, than a company, where in a company, you have kind of like a military structure, right? You have you have the chief executive and you have the, uh, you know, the lieutenants and you have the, you know, it's, it's very, it's very much a, um, a, a pyramid um, uh, or a hierarchy in that sense. But a country is, is a lot messier. There's a lot more diplomacy involved. There's a lot more uh, politics involved. And, and we see, we see those things playing out in, in crypto where um, uh, it's, it's not one person's decision to make a change. You have to, uh, uh, bring people into the decisions, and, and that ends up being a political and diplomatic process. Yeah, and to uh, to go on a bit of a tangent here, how do you think uh, uh, crypto will interface with with actual governments? You know, we've seen China make blockchain a yeah. priority. Uh, how how will that play out? How should that play out? It, it seems that yeah, it will only be messy at some point. <laughs> um, how do you how do you foresee that playing out? So, you know, I can tell you what my idealist uh, wants to see. And, Give us both. And, you know, <laughs> what my idealist wants to see is governments focus on the interface between their sovereignty and the network's sovereignty, which to me is the point of the fiat exchange point. And so the, the way, the way I, I think of it, uh, a crypto network should be sovereign, um, but governments should have and do have the authority to govern local usage of, of the network, but not the network itself. Um, and it's very much like the internet, right? The, the internet exists as, 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 a, as, a, um, as an entity unto itself in a way, but governments individually regulate their own local usage. And some do it uh, for the good of the people and some do it for other purposes. And so, um, you know, we see governments engage in censorship and things like that or, or, or weaponizing the Internet. And obviously, those are things that we do not want. But ultimately, you know, under the current power structures, it is in their power to do that. I think the relationship with crypto networks should be the same. Any individual government should not be able to have 
you know, the power to say shut down a network, but it should have the power to regulate local usage. And I think the only point where it makes sense for them to do that is the point of, of fiat exchange. Uh, and that's actually where I think a, gov- a progressive government will have an opportunity to set themselves up to capitalize on crypto as, as a society, because that ends up being the point of most friction. And it's also a point of high leverage because it kind of allows the government to focus on one thing, but it also preserves a lot of the openness and flexibility for citizens. Um, and so my desire is to achieve a balance where uh, governments realize that they have to create sensible uh, policies and regulations for usage because users always have the option of using crypto without uh, having to ask permission from their government. And so trying to find, figure out how to how to use crypto as a way to balance the scales of power more towards the citizenry without undermining the value of government, which is something that I think um, is, is very common in crypto. Uh, our researcher, Mario, actually wrote an essay uh, on on these questions. Mario uh, is, I, I don't know how to describe him, but, but one of the things that he is, is a brilliant economic historian. And so he has a, kind of a long view on the evolutions of governments and their interactions with technologies and so on uh, that, are, that are great to explore. Um, that post is on our website. Totally. And do you buy the sort of sovereign individual thesis that we will, you know, transform from citizens of governments, I, you know, we exist to serve them to customers of governments, they exist to serve us. And that, you know, if money and state become decoupled or, or military mm-hmm. and state become, you know, somewhat decoupled, you know, they'll become somewhat commoditized. Um, yeah. It's great fragmentation or, you know, or sort of innovation in markets for governance. I, I struggle with that question because on, on, on or, or, or with that proposition, because on, on one hand, yes, but this this kind of dynamic is 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 unevenly distributed distributed. What I mean by that is that that is, that is actually already the case in the current kind of social regime or global regime. The thing is, it's 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 only available to the very wealthy. If you're very wealthy, you are a customer of governments. You know, you can you can move uh, pretty easily. You can move from not, not only is is a question of affording it. You know, to get to get on a plane and, and go somewhere, but uh, the basically the entire uh, tax haven business or you know industry and the whole thing about moving your wealth around the world uh, is kind of that playing out. It's much harder to do that at uh, at a at a true kind of global equal access scale because the reality is that the vast vast majority of people in the world literally cannot leave the place where they were born. And so then, you know, it doesn't matter that there's this global marketplace for governments if you can't even get on a flight to go to the other place where where you would want to go. And then the way society has organized itself thus far, the other governments make it really difficult for you to do that. And so there is wealth discrimination when it comes to the services of governments. Governments want People, they, they, they want people who they think will, will add value and they end up discarding the people who probably need mobility the most. And so that's, that's my struggle with that is I, I have a hard time seeing how that ends up playing out for the benefit of all humans as opposed to a very few. Do, do you believe in the, in the charter city movement, which I believe is trying to, to partner with some of the poorer countries and, uh, and, and bring sort of, 
you know, early adopters who who want to experiment with governance in, into these into these countries. But I'm, and I'm curious more broadly how you think the information revolution or you know governance uh, on the web and, and with crypto will you know revolutionize offline uh, uh, governance and if yeah these sort of this explosion or or if in you know hundred or two year hundred years from now be sort of like what it is today with my, you know minor changes here and there. Right. You know, there's um. You know, 200 years from now, who knows, right? 200 years from now, it, it, it's obviously impossible to know. We can look at 200 years before now and, and, and look at how far we've come and how much society has changed and kind of estimate a, a, a change of equal scale. And so, you know, maybe 200, first of all, maybe 200 years from now, we don't exist as, as humans. But uh, maybe there will be enough liquidity in, in devices and connectivity and, and, and networks that we get to replace uh, institutions with networks or networks become the new institutions. And so th- these are all of the uh, cyberpunk ideas around, or uh, maybe not cyberpunk, but the ideas that you know, we can govern all of society with uh, internet and direct voting and crypto and the work that Democracy OS is doing, which is fantastic on, on kind of building these tools uh, for societies or groups to organize themselves, or even the work that Aragon is doing that, that can be applied for these purposes. And, and we're starting to see, uh, in, in the spirit of, of jurisdictional competition, we're starting to see countries kind of embrace these more progressive uh, ways of, of managing themselves. Um, so I do think that we we will get a flattening of the hierarchy as as a result of of these technologies. Part of me thinks that it, it will end up being kind of in the same place in 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 unpredictable ways. And I, I'll, I'll reference another post that Mario wrote, um, a research a governance researcher, uh, that he calls the the full circle hypothesis, uh, the idea that. We're, we're doing all this work to try and, and fix the problems that we're seeing. And then, you know, long term, do we do we end up in, in the same kind of dynamics and constructions? And you know, that goes back to the question of, you know, is there a natural gravity or, you know, a law of concentration or things like that that, that emerges? And I think there's lots of reasons for that. You know, people don't like to make decisions in general. And so, you know, outsourcing decisions is something that that I think it's clear that people generally want to do. But for the short term. Um, I'm less focused on uh, the idea that the edge, say, you know, the average person will be involved in the governance of systems and governments so much as I am focused on distribution of capital um, from the point of view of um, I've, I've narrowed down my focus on crypto to the one thing that I really care about is distributing capital over the Internet. To me, crypto is about capital over IP. It's a whole bunch of other things as well. But this is what I think is the highest leverage kind of area of focus when it comes to affecting change in society. And the, w- the example that, that, that I want to use for that is actually a, um, you know, has nothing to do with distributing capital over IP directly, but, uh, in this context of, uh, mobility and people moving around geographies and all of the geopolitical changes that we are observing in real time that will continue to happen over the next several years with everything from political dissent to uh, mass migrations as a result of climate change. One thing that uh, I, I think is critical is the ability for of people to take, take their capital with them. And it's the kind of thing where when chaos hits your 
your society, your tribe, your group, your country. There's few other things out there that let you take your assets and go. You know, you can take your private if, if your if your wealth is in crypto, you can take your private keys and go, and you can go from A to B, and and you're taking your your stuff with you in, in a very lightweight way. When you're operating under the uh, kind of centralized uh, regimes, you you can't do that, and we see that with capital controls and all of that. That's less tangible to people who kind of operate in developed, stable, safe economies on a day-to-day basis, but it is something that uh, affects or is, is really a concern for the majority of the world at the end of the day. And so that, that is where, where I'm focusing my time on, um, more about the distribution of wealth uh, than the distribution of governance. And unpack that evolution. Why did you have sort of the original view that you had? What, what, what changed uh, and what changed your view to focus more on, on capital here? So I've been a venture capitalist for five years. And, and so it was a little awkward when, you know, a year or two ago, I, I asked myself, what is capital? And I, I did a few years of, of economics and undergrad, and I, I knew everything I had been taught at, at and, uh, economics about what capital was uh, supposed to be. And, um, you know, I, I went and revisited all of that and, and found that a lot of, I, I just wasn't satisfied with a lot of the definitions that are out there for capital. First of all, there's so many definitions of capital. And I, I, I noticed that they were, they were kind of rooted in the time that they came up. And so a lot of the definitions, a lot of the classic definitions are very industrial or very, you know, uh, about production, you know, we go back to Marx and we go back to you know Keynes and all that stuff, um, and so they're they're very much focused on that kind of paradigm. But then, what's happened since we started talking about capital, you know, hundreds of years ago to now, is that not only has has have the definitions expanded, so so have the types of capital. Now it's not only you know capital in the form of land. Now we have you know, productive capital and real capital and financial capital and social capital and political capital, environmental capital, natural capital, all of these kind of kinds of capital for which the traditional definitions don't, don't always apply. And so, so I basically went down this rabbit hole and came full circle and realized that capital was ultimately control. That is the one thing that all the forms and types uh, and definitions of capital have in common. And so Basically, the idea is that uh, the capital of the system is is essentially um, the the mechanism of control of that system. So, if you uh, ultimately capital is control over economic resources, if you have a lot of social capital, you have some form of control over social attention, mood, activity. So, you have you know 10 million followers on Instagram, you can do a lot of that uh, with that amount of social capital. Uh, versus if you only have you know 100 followers. Um, similar, you know, with political capital, it's another fussy one that, that, you know, it, it's not very well understood, but it's, it's similar in that way. It's, it, it represents some kind of control. And so that's when, when governance became a capital question for me, because, and, and I try to explore this in a post titled crypto network governance as capital. Um, but the, the notion that ultimately the holding of capital is, is capital as an instrument of control, then if, if we distribute capital more broadly, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm talking from like a 60,000 foot view here. If we distribute capital more broadly and we focus on, on that aspect of things, then we don't necessarily have to focus so much on building governance systems that scale 
to millions and millions of people because that's a very difficult coordination problem and arguably impossible if, if, you know, if you go by some of the research that's been done on, on governance systems. But if we end up distributing um, the things that influences governance, which is you know the capital behind these systems, more broadly, then can we get in a place where the capital itself is distributed enough that the people who actually make the decisions and execute on on things behave in 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 a better way? It's a bit fussy, but what I'm thinking about is the distinction between you know a system whose capital is very very concentrated versus a system uh, whose capital is not. Uh, so if you think of Facebook, the capital of Facebook as represented by its shares of stock is heavily, heavily concentrated. And so a really small group of people, you know, maybe a few hundred people have a lot of influence over the lives of billions of people. Um, and so there you have a system that touches a whole bunch of people, but the capital is concentrated amongst a small few and the incentives that they have are very different from the incentives of of everyone who is a stakeholder in the system. But if you distribute that that power more broadly uh, or that influence more broadly, it's not so much that you want those billion people involved in the decision-making process, but rather you want to create new systems such that the people who are involved in the decision-making process do so in a way that advantages uh, everyone else as opposed to just themselves. Jesse Walden had a, a blog post or two about uh, what crypto networks really enabling is is sort of sustainable co-ops or yeah. co-ops that really make, make, make money. Is, is that resonate? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, you had a note about uh, time and money and it was, and uh, in, in maybe what was, what's really worth redistributing or what wealth redistribution should include is the distribution of time. Yeah. The, the, um, I was, uh, I was thinking about time and money, as you said, and, and I was thinking about that, that phrase that, that money doesn't buy you happiness, and it's true. Um, but money can buy you a lot of time, and time you can invest it into into happiness. What I was reflecting on as I was thinking about these things was how much of not having money is actually about not having time to do things that make you happy, uh, and how that ends up being a a, a source of distress more than the lack of money itself. And, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, little things like I, I, I was, I think I was at an airport when this happened. And it's even, you know, marginal things like, you know, the farther up in the front of the plane you are, you know, that saves you 20, 30, 40 minutes. And that ends up being a money thing, right? And so that is, you know, the distribution of time, uh, the, the way I think about that is, Distribution of wealth is, is, is you know, is, is one kind of problem. But if we think about if, if what we want to achieve is giving more people uh, a, a chance at, at living the life that they want to live, you know, giving them more time to have leisure, more time to spend doing the things that they want is is really the thing that matters uh, much more than than money. Totally. Before this this uh, podcast, we were talking about Carlotta Perez and how, how we've been influenced by her. And you were talking about how you uh, originally thought that crypto was sort of a, a new technological revolution, but then realized uh, by talking to Carlotta that it was part of the existing you know uh, information revolution, but that because of that, it was even bigger. Talk about what you mean by that and what you discovered. When I joined USV, which was uh, the, the firm I used to work at before Placeholder, 
the first thing they handed me was Carlotta's book on technological revolutions and financial capital, um, which uh, had been key to the founding of Union Square Ventures, and it became part of the of that of the thesis of Union Square Ventures, and so that was that was passed down onto me, and. I started looking at crypto through that lens. I, I, I thought of crypto or of blockchain as a technological revolution. I, I, I thought of a blockchain as, as, a, as, as you know, something that would kickstart a uh, you know, 50 year, 60 year innovation cycle and all of that. And I operated under that notion for a long time until meeting Carlotta. Um, so what happened is, um, um, I think through Twitter, uh, my partner Chris uh, got in touch with Carlotta and, and, and we scheduled a call and we were really excited to talk with her about crypto because we were now, this was just when we were starting Placeholder and, you know, we had used Carlotta's work as, as part of our uh, uh, thesis work. And so we were excited to do that. And then, um, so I was a little surprised when when she was pretty adamant about the fact that crypto was not a technological revolution at all but rather uh, an expression uh, of the maturity of information technology as a technological revolution. So the way Carlotta saw it, uh, and, and maybe to, to put some context to, to these ideas, uh, Carlotta has a framework that describes the relationship between technological innovation and financial capital, where uh, she splits uh, innovation cycles in technology in kind of two phases. Um, you know, a, a, a period or two big period, two main periods. Uh, one is the emergence of the technology, and it's a kind of 20 to 30 year period where the technology is invented and it's iterated on and it's kind of uh, uh, built up over time. And then there's a second uh, phase where the technology reaches a place of maturity and it starts um, actually uh, making its way to the, you know, the fabric of society. And so in her book, she goes back, she's thinking about technology more broadly. She's not taking, thinking about digital technology or anything. She goes back to railroads and electricity and telecommunications and, and those big technological revolutions, those kind of large scale ones. And so I, I, I thought that crypto was one of those, that blockchain was one of those. But Carlotta uh, correctly pointed out that crypto is still within the information technology revolution. And it is. It, it's an information technology um, and none of the technology is actually new. We're still using the same hardware paradigms, the same, you know, networks and things like that. Uh, and, 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 you know, technologies, we're just arranging them in different ways. And so initially I was a little, I was a little disappointed that, uh, at that notion that, that crypto wasn't a technological revolution. But then that got me thinking about, you know, what kind of revolution it was uh, or it is. And it, it made me realize that it's, uh, it's a it's a socioeconomic revolution, uh, in the sense that it, she she's right. It's um, you know it, it's it's information technology making its way to the deeper fabrics of society, and when you when you think about what what we're building with crypto and what's what's uh, resonating with people and what what's taking off is precisely things that are challenging the basic structures of capitalism. We're 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 redesigning money. We're redesigning markets. We're redesigning uh, uh, organizations. All of these these foundational elements. We're creating new institutions. And ultimately, crypto is more about different ways of organizing economic economic activity than it is innovation on on technology. Uh, but that actually increased the scale of of crypto for me because it was no longer you know a 
cool new technology. It was this more profound shift in the way that we manage society. And, and let's uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Paint a paint a picture of, of what that could look like. Earlier in this interview, we talked. You talked about how you know it goes way beyond currency. And and when I asked mm-hmm. Mario for for a question, he asked, uh, "What does everyday life interactions look like in a world where most of what you believe uh, hopes will happen actually happens?" And he asked, "What what new problems might stem stem from that?" So why don't you sort of paint paint some visuals for for what this could look like? So. Just, just for everyone's context, Mario, we uh, Mario was uh, a student of Carlotta's. Uh, we met Mario around the time that we started talking with Carlotta, and and as I mentioned earlier, he has this kind of very deep uh, knowledge of kind of the history of society and the economy and so on. And so, a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that we find in crypto that he very quickly goes like, "Yep, we've been here before, and you know, we went through this before, and things like that." So, you know, painting a visual. I used to be a lot more imaginative, actually, where I could paint you that, um, that cryptonauts vision of, um, you know, you're fully, uh, independent and self-sovereign and you have your keys and your hardware wallet that you carry with you or, you know, however. And, you know, you can move freely from border to border and, you know, your passport's a token and your identity is, you know, all your data is on your phone or your device and, and you kind of interact with systems through blockchains and, and, and uh, the idea being that uh, we, we kind of get rid of companies and we get rid of governments or, or they become very, very minimal and we manage everything through networks. That is great for a sci-fi book. It, it, it's much harder to uh, actually uh, see or at the very least it, 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 that future may outlive us or, you know, it may come way past our time. But this is actually trying to, trying to work through my idealism is, is how I ended up coming back down to, uh, capital as the, as the one uh, kind of object of focus. Because I, I think most of society's problems stem from, uh, the maldistribution of capital. And, and, and I can unpack that a little bit further, but to, to go back to the currency uh, or the payment or the money question, to me, cryptocurrencies as, as a means of payment or, or that, that original notion that, uh, that uh, you know, we're, we're going to use these systems to, to pay for things on a daily, day-to-day basis um, it is a little bit like um, saying that the internet is only email. Um, and and it, it's kind of an interesting time to be talking about this because we have Facebook in front of the U.S. Congress fighting, um, you know, this, this kind of nasty fight over a payment system at the end of the day, uh, which to me feels a little silly because it's kind of like, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's focused on the wrong thing. Uh, and now the email analogy works because email is a fundamental part of the web. Uh, the web runs on email. It absolutely does. Everything comes down to email. Email is your personal data store. It's your identity. It's your backup. It's a whole bunch of things. It's foundational infrastructure for the web. And, and that, that one's easy to argue. But it's far from the most important thing that, that we do. Or maybe that's, a, that's not the right way to say it, but it, it's, it's far from the most um, valuable activity um, that, that we do on the web, or at the very least, I'll say that uh, obviously we do a lot more than, than just email on the web. Uh, so to me, you know, the, the, 
the money payment function uh, with Bitcoin and so on is like email. It, it, it's it, it's going to be huge and fundamental and going to reach a, you know the highest level of scale in terms of the applications uh, or relative to other applications because it's such a foundational layer. But I'm more interested in the things we get to do once we have this foundational layer of um, uh, self-sovereign payment systems. Um, and and what, what I think we get to build on top of that is new, new capital distribution systems. Uh, and you know, I've been playing around with, with the words uh, here uh, just for my own fun, where uh, I've started to think of crypto networks as, as CDNs, uh, but not content delivery networks, more, more as capital delivery networks. Uh, and this is all the stuff that I've been exploring with crypto network governance as capital and, and how much of, of the new things that we're building uh, in crypto networks are really capital systems. A DAO is really a capital system. Uh, crypto network is really a capital system. Um, and so starting to think about crypto through the lens of capital has given me an opportunity uh, to have a better sense of how this technology uh, actually can change the, the, the lives of the people that use them. Um, and so that's, that's, that's been a little bit of my progression. So, you know, to go back to your original question and, and paint you a picture, I, I, I'm no longer kind of uh, uh, idealist about this kind of super decentralized future. I think we'll have a wide variety of centralized and decentralized organizations and systems that will integrate with all of these technologies in various ways. Uh, but the future that I want to see and the future that that I'm driving towards is one where really it's as simple as distributing capital over the internet. What I want to see is people interact with services uh, much in the same way that they interact with services today, like Facebook and Google and Twitter and so on. Um, but where the users end up becoming stakeholders uh, in these systems where it, instead of organizing these services under the equity paradigm, uh, which is an industrial capitalist model, uh, can we use crypto to create an information capital model uh, where everyone participates in the value created uh, by the networks? Um, and so thinking about how to just literally put more capital in people's hands now that we can represent it digitally and distribute it over the Internet, that's one way in which I think crypto is going to end up changing the way we structure ourselves fundamentally, even though uh, 10, 20 years from now, it may seem like it's an incremental change. Um, so I'll just narrow it down to I, I, I want to uh, increase the number of capital holders uh, by orders of magnitude using using crypto. And I think that ends up then uh, cascading into more profound social changes. And, and is that evolution in your paradigm um, from, you know, full decentralized sovereignty to, you know, capital over over IP? More so because it's pragmatic and something we can achieve sooner, or because there's that's actually more uh, a hybrid approach is more ideal, um, and that the fully decentralized you know approach is not is not just you know far in the future, but also maybe not the best way to go. Maybe yeah, it's it it's a bit of all of them. So the the first one has to do with you know the full self sovereign individual vision. It is not it's not very pragmatic when you consider a wide variety of things. And, you know, I'm, I'm being a little hand wavy about it because it's a very complicated thing. But it, it it's really about just how complex society is. And the the thing that I think is, is very difficult is trying to design 
systems and rules that that scale and evolve and you know at, at, at a really large scale and so you know i'm struggling to describe it but i think there's a natural limit to how large a system of people can get before it corrupts itself or breaks down and so the there, there's there's part of me that's a little afraid of a hyper sovereign uh future um and and i struggle with these things personally because I, I kind of have two sides to 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 my argument based on the different places where I've lived and experienced things where I've lived in places where there's very very dysfunctional governments and this you know the the um the fabric of those societies is such that it requires centralization to fix in a way uh where you know there's problems that you can't fix with with decentralization there's problems that you fix with centralization and so I don't I no longer think that there that that there is one solution to everything and there and it's decentralization some problems require centralization to solve and some require decentralization and i think it's hard to make those decisions kind of in a blanket on a blanket basis um but there's one thing that i know for sure that is universally positive which is increasing uh wealth distribution and the this this more kind of pragmatic approach it's still a difficult problem uh it 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 but it it it's a it's a more limited scope where the ideas that i'm playing with is okay if if capital is control and influence then uh we don't necessarily have to design very specific and prescribed systems for how to run society but rather if we spread the influence over the system a little bit more maybe organically we end up constructing new new ways of relating to each other or new ways of of governing ourselves or or making decisions um and so it's it it has to do with this kind of realization that the more wealth you have the more influence you have and the more options and freedom and time you have and so let's spread that more widely and maybe uh that'll allow us to organically create better better systems rather than try to design the the perfect system up front yeah makes sense and the you know, you you talked about in previous podcasts the sort of concern that you have is uh you know currency and capital got became separate um and so i'm curious if you can give some historical back, background for for how that happened under modern capitalism and then you going to unpack deeper why a lot of the problems or, or what problems stem from from inequality and so wealth distribution and in a world where wealth was more evenly distributed Beyond the, the moral benefits which, of fairness, which, which are very real, what, what are the practical benefits we, we, we would see as a result of it? Yep. So there's, um, there's something I like to think about, which, which I, 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 I like to call the unbundling of money. And it comes from the definition of money that is most often used or thrown around, particularly in crypto, when we talk about um, a lot of these as monetary systems. And the, the common definition for money is that it's, 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 it's a thing or an instrument that uh, serves as a, um, a means of exchange, a unit of account and the store of value. And what those things mean is means of exchange is, you know, you can use this to trade, trade it for other goods and services or for any other good and service within an economy. Uh, unit of account means that it is the, uh, the unit in which the value of the goods and services in the economy are measured. Uh, so basically the the unit of pricing um so in you know the US and in many other parts of the world we measure the value of things in dollars and so the dollar serves as a unit of account and then a store of value which at a minimum means that it it should maintain its value 
over time. So that's that's what money's supposed to be. When when you look at, at at what we actually have, we don't really have anything that fits or under the current the current world uh, or the, the 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 legacy economy. Let's call it. Uh, I think the kids are calling it the boomer economy now. Uh, we don't have uh, a single instrument that does all of those three things. What's happened is that we've kind of unbundled those three functions uh, of money into into different asset types or classes. Uh, so the the first one, which is a means of exchange, uh, is has actually gone to debt. Uh, and what's happened over the last several decades is that uh, increasingly we're using debt to transact rather than actual currency. And, or, or, or actual money or actual dollars or you know, any other national currency. And that's something that the, the average person or citizen doesn't see because what you see uh, in, in your bank account, you, know, you see your checking account balance and you see your credit card balance. You kind of understand that a credit card is dead and all of that. But the, the user interface to debt has become really uh, sophisticated. And so we don't, we don't really see it on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but when you peel back the layers into the financial system, you realize that uh, there's a there's a lot more debt being used to transact in general in the economy than transactions involving actual exchange of dollars. Um, and that goes down to how money is actually created in the economy. And a subtle thing that's happened in the last few decades is that essentially central banks have outsourced the money creation or the money supply creation function to commercial banks who create money by creating debt. Um, and it's, you know, that relationship is very clear when you swipe a credit card, you know, there's, there's debt that's being created and that debt is moving from one bank's balance sheet to another bank's balance sheet. And so in the background, we see dollars moving around in the user interfaces to the legacy financial system, but by and large, it's debt. And it goes down even to how governments end up creating more money or, or kind of exact influence on the economy. They do that by incurring debt at the national level. And so it's basically debt all the way down that we use to transact. And that's not, you know, terrible in and of itself in the sense that it actually, part of the reason we ended up in the system is that it's actually more efficient uh, for central banks to operate this way because it, it, it gets us to where we are now, where you can effectively control the money supply by just manipulating one variable, which is the interest rate. And so as a central bank, as the economy grows, it is a more effective way of managing the monetary supply versus prior economic models or monetary models, where, for example, when we had the gold standard, manipulating the money supply was very, very difficult and expensive because you actually had to acquire more gold to, to issue more currency or to issue more money. And so, you know, that's happened. It has benefits and it has, you know, uh, it has its pros and cons. Um, but by and large, uh, debt is the, the number one means of exchange in society, not, not actual dollars or euros or, or any other currency. So that's what hap- that's what's happened with means of exchange. Fiat remains as unit of account by and large. And we use fiat to measure the scale of debt. And so, uh, and, and we use fiat to, to price things. And so, uh, fiat money, or what we think of as money generally, uh, is is still used very much as a as a unit of account. But then, you know, we get the store of value, and and that one is is the tricky one um, because store of value effectively went to capital. Um, and the thing is that 
uh, store of value and debt are opposed. Uh, debt is far from a store of value. Debt is the opposite of store of value. Debt loses value over time uh, versus a store of value, which uh, we established at the very least maintains its value over time. And I'm, I'm talking at a really high level here because obviously within capital, there's so much that's an entire universe of, of different assets and kinds and all of those things. But if you take capital as a category, if you take everything that is capital and you put it in a cat in, in a single bucket, that is the store of value of the world. Um, and if we go back to our new definition of capital as control over economic resources, Really, it means that the economic resources, which are scarce resources, everything that we have in the world, that's really what stores value. And so we, we, we ended up in this, in this model where generally what we used to transact is that, uh, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, and this is, this has a long history. Uh, there's a famous book, which I actually haven't read, but that deals with the history of debt over 5,000 years or so. And it really makes the point of how debt is what we used to transact. Uh, fiat ended up being mostly a unit of account, but that separation between those two things uh, made it more efficient for the economy to scale because then governments could manipulate the money supply uh, with uh, much easier uh, mechanisms. Uh, but then we have store of value and capital. And so capital is the only thing that tends to not only store value, but uh, appreciate in value, grow in value over time. So now we have these three things. We have uh, debt, we have fiat, and we have capital, and they perform independently the three money functions. Um, and, you know, so far, it's, there's, there's very good reasons why we ended up in this, in this organization. The problem is that most people live their lives in currency, and uh, very few people live their lives in capital. Um, and currency and it, what I, what I call currency is basically a means of exchange and unit of account. That's, you know, currency debt is really the currency that we use. Currency is what we use to actually transact and, 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 and engage in, in exchanges. And so most people live their lives in currency. What I mean by that is most people get a job, work for a company and they receive an income, a salary or a paycheck from that company in currency, in dollars. Um, but we've established that that's pretty much debt, uh, which loses value over time. Whereas very few people live their lives in capital. And what I be, mean by that is people who derive their wealth or their income from capital. Uh, so it's the difference between the employee who works for the company and the people who own the company. And what ends up happening is that over time, if you just kind of zoom out and just look at, at the economy, uh, uh, from space, uh, if you have most people living in currency, which is really debt, which loses value over time, and you have very few people living in capital, which is a store of value, uh, which increases in value over time, then you can start to see how over time, as the, as the economy develops, uh, the majority of people end up losing wealth and becoming increasingly poor over time. Uh, while the, the, let's call it the capital class, uh, uh, in, increases their wealth over time. And we end up with these now very dangerous, literally dangerous levels of wealth inequality. But the problem is not capital itself. I think a lot of public policy focuses on how do we 
how we distribute wealth or we distribute income or how do we kind of, you know, there's this kind of evil uh, tone to the, to the word capital and so on, you know, the capitalists and, and those things. But you can't, can't get rid of capital. If capital is, you know, control over economic resources and all of these things, you can't actually get rid of it. Um, so the solution, the only solution I see is let's, let's distribute capital more broadly. Let's bring more people over to the capital side. Let's try and bring everyone to the capital side. So that instead of uh, uh, let, let's minimize the number of people who live in currency and debt, uh, and, and instead maximize the number of people who live in capital. Now, the reason that's very hard to do in the current industrial economy is that distributing capital is very expensive. Uh, and, and if we come down from you know to a more practical level, uh, the forms of capital, the instruments of capital that we have today, like shares of stock and companies. Uh, or bonds or all of these instruments that we've created, uh, they're very expensive to distribute. You know, if you try to transfer a share of stock for, of a private company from one individual to another, it's a very, very expensive transaction. Similar, even, even after a company goes public, which is meant to make the exchange of capital or the distribution of capital much cheaper, even then when you, when you take a more global perspective, it's very difficult. And the example I like to use is an example from back home, which is that you can be in the Dominican Republic, a relatively wealthy family or a middle-class family and have you know, fifty to $100,000 in, in savings, which is a lot of money down there. It's a lot of money here, but it's a lot of money down there. Uh, and, and there you're wealthy. You, know, you, 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 can, you can be in that position. You are way ahead. You're in the 1% of the Dominican Republic if you're in that situation. You can't buy a share of Apple stock. You can't go to your local bank and say, hey, I want a share of Apple stock or I want a share of Amazon stock or I want a share of Google. You, it, it's just not available to you. The financial system is too expensive to scale uh, on a global basis. And so you may have the money to buy that capital to access that wealth, but you literally cannot. Uh, and that is exactly the problem that I think we get to solve with blockchains and crypto, because now we get to uh, create digital capital instruments and then distribute it over the internet, because you can put a token in anyone's phone. If, if they have a wallet. And so that's, you know, kind of studying this history and this kind of uh, uh, setup of, of the current incarnation of capitalism is what led me to realize this kind of divide between the, uh, the currency class and the capital class and understanding that the solution to that problem is not increasing uh, redistribution, but rather uh, designing systems that have pre-distribution built in where uh, can we design uh, these new capital distribution networks that actually put more capital in more people's hands and bring them over to the capital side as opposed to leaving them in the debt and currency side. Totally. And let's segue into your, your investment focus today, your investment thesis today, or what types of things you're, you're looking to invest in. I'm curious how you just, the evolution you're thinking that you just talked about, but broadly the evolution of how the space has evolved has led to any evolution in the sort of the placeholder you know, investment thesis or focus or, or what types of things you're, you're looking to invest in today. You know, I'm thinking back to to our uh, summary thesis from when we started the firm, and if, if I haven't read it in a while, but uh, if I remember it correctly, we were very much focused on infrastructure from the point of view of technology. So what I like to call application infrastructure, uh, and this goes back to this notion that we started out more in the technological side and then now realizing that it's more of a socio-political matter or a socio-economic matter that... Um, 
you know, we were we were looking at things like decentralized storage and decentralized compute and transcoding and and these things because it's if, if you're thinking about decentralizing the web or decentralizing the internet, that that's where you'll go. And we've made a number of investments in that category, and we continue to make them. And and and, and we definitely believe that uh, application infrastructure is is an important foundational layer uh, of crypto. But as we've been exploring the, these broader kind of notions. I'm starting to realize that um, a lot of what we think is consumer services, not maybe not consumer services, but for example, DeFi uh, is is a kind of infrastructure, decentralized finance. When you think of crypto as a uh, socioeconomic revolution, all of a sudden the ability to have self-sovereign credit systems, self-sovereign exchanges, uh, self-sovereign stable coins and things like that those become economic infrastructure. Um, and so I would say that uh, one uh, big uh, iteration or evolution of our thesis is uh, an expansion of, of what we think of as, as infrastructure. Now we think of two kinds of infrastructure. There's application infrastructure and economic infrastructure. What's interesting about those two kinds is that we've actually struggled with the application infrastructure and it mostly because they're very hard computer science problems. A lot of uh, the uh, a lot of people kind of uh, see crypto infrastructure as being immature, which it is, because you know creating a robust decentralized file storage system is very difficult, and creating a robust decentralized fee and all of these things, they're very hard. And so they that that actually takes quite a bit. But we've been seeing a lot more traction and activity around the economic infrastructure, uh, in part because the technologies that we have today. Uh, kind of are good enough to allow us to design and test these systems. And so it's the stuff that we can actually use. Um, but it's also subtly uh, a kind of infrastructure that I think doesn't initially seem like it is. Um, but when you start thinking about this kind of broader concept of, okay, we're going to create these global economies and we're going to distribute capital over IP, we need a financial system that is natively digital that can deal with these new forms of capital. And so it, everything that that we're doing in DeFi uh, has this this kind of uh, North Star with it. Uh, We need to build, uh, just as we need to build base layer blockchains that allow us to distribute the ledger and we need uh, to build application infrastructure so we can distribute information, uh, DeFi is infrastructure. These protocols are infrastructure for the distribution uh, of economic value. Uh, And and that's something that we've been spending a lot of our time on. Yeah. You know, Danny Grant from USV and Nick uh, had this post about you know application and infrastructure. It's basically the punchline is we, we sort of expect you know, inf- we, us to start out with infrastructure and then build applications on top. But they talked about how sometimes it's the applications you know first that that pull sort of the need for for in, for infrastructure. I'm curious if if that post resonated. If you have a difference of opinion there, and Danny Grant also has this post that she hasn't yet published called "The New New Thing versus the New Old Thing," where basically she says that anytime there's a new technology. Like like the web, like crypto, uh, sort of use cases that could only be created by that new technology tend to work at first because because there's no competition, and then as the sort of infrastructure gets built out, et cetera, and, and, and adoption happens, then sort of the new old things start working. And the example mm-hmm. of old things is you know uh, you know Webvan versus Instacart or or you know Pets.com versus you know Chewy. Yeah, does, does that resonate with you? Or, or so I have a I, I have a different take on the same on the same, let's call it, you know, idea, which I, I, I describe different 
Danny's Danny's super smart. Uh, she she's she sometimes intimidates me with with how smart she is. Um, the way I think about it is um, you you know two kinds of innovation uh, when a new technology emerges where you uh, and these are these are bad terms but it helps me think about it uh, kind of below the standard below the technology and above the technology. But really what I what I mean is you know what the the first kinds of applications that we see. Uh, I actually think are the uh, the old things uh, when we take the new technology to do things that we know well and understand. And we do get the new, new things at around the same time, um, but they take a little longer to materialize. So I, I, you know, I have the same observation, but I think about it uh, kind of in, in reverse. And the observation there is that early on when we have this new tool, and we don't quite know how to use it very well. It's, it's, it's easier to imagine how to use it to improve the things that we already understand. And in the context of crypto, arguably Bitcoin is uh, an old, uh, you know, tackling an old problem. It's, it's money, you know, it's, or it was, it was, it was trying to fix payments and money and, you know, these, these issues with, uh, uh, the, the, not only technological issues, but also governance issues around the monetary system and so on. Um, but we were we were kind of working within a problem that uh, already exists or a market that already exists. There's already a market for money. There's already uh, you know a financial system to go out and uh, and uh, work with. And and we're seeing it also in in DeFi today. A lot of the innovation that the early innovation that we're seeing is taking the new tool uh, to recreate credit markets, to recreate uh, transaction ledgers, to recreate. Uh, payment systems and, and, and saving systems and so on. And, and I do think it has to do with um, our, our lack of imagination in a way early on when, when we don't quite know. Now, the, the new, new things, there's no market for them in, in that uh, they, they do emerge earlier, but they tend to be much smaller for that reason. Uh, and they end up being the things that end up capturing the most value long term. The example that I like to use is if you if you go to the internet, uh, a lot of the early traction or a lot of the early innovation in the 90s, for instance, was square within the things and markets that we understood. It was a lot of media. It was a lot of you know, early early search engines, for example, where it didn't look like Google or Google at all. And before we had even a search paradigm, we had portals, uh, uh, you know, Yahoo and AOL and and a bunch of others, which uh, were these massive front pages that had collections of links and uh, looked very much like the cover page of a newspaper because we were coming from that paradigm. We were thinking, okay, we take a newspaper and we put it online and that's how we distribute information. But it wasn't until you know what we now call Web 2.0 uh, that the more native implementations of web systems started to emerge. Another example I'd like to use from that era is, um, you know, because that, that's, that's an internet example. We can also look at another thing that was going on around that time, which was Linux. And Linux came up in uh, 1991, and uh, one of the company, one of the earliest companies to capitalize on that was Red Hat, uh, which took the new free operating system to essentially compete with Microsoft, uh, used the cost savings of Linux from the point of view of, you know, we don't have to invest in the development of this software. Rather, we can uh, focus on the implementation and the support and we can compete with Microsoft by offering an operating system solution at a lower price. But really, ultimately, the real value created by Linux came from the fact that it is 
the most common operating system by far used by pretty much every web service. But back then, it wasn't clear that Linux's ultimate purpose was to be the operating system of the internet. And so, you know, I think it's the same, the same kind of idea and observation, except I think that the, the old use cases end up coming up first, uh, and that the new, new stuff does come up at around the same time, but takes much longer to develop. In terms of the applications versus infrastructure and the chicken on the egg thing, I think it's a chicken on the egg thing. Um, you know, we had those debates and, and, and I think sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other. Yeah, I, I don't have a strong opinion on that one. Totally. And, and, you know, actually, it's interestingly enough, there were some things that I discovered via the crypto community that I could only discover perhaps via the crypto community, but it was unclear to me that you needed crypto to or blockchain to do them. So like prediction markets or, you know, income share agreements or even charter cities, as we were discussing before. I'm curious what sort of new news use case, we talked mentioned DAOs a little bit, what new news cases you're excited about, or if you sort of had a request for, for startups or protocols or innovation uh, for, you know, for all the builders out there who are you know, looking at, at, at what to build in the space, what, what might you recommend or what do you want to see experimented on or built? So the, um, the two new, new things that I am uh, most intrigued by these days are, you mentioned DAOs, that's one of them. And the other one is NFTs. Um, non-fungible tokens, you know, the stuff that makes CryptoKitties run. And the, the DAO one, DAOs are, are, are something we've been uh, working on for a while. Aragon was actually one of our first ever investments. And Aragon built a series of tools that make it easy for, for consumers to, to create DAOs. And we've gone through, you know, the DAO hype cycle in, in, within crypto in a variety of ways. The, the thing that I'm, that I'm now kind of realizing about DAOs is I, I, you know, I had a number of experiences growing up. I grew up on the internet. I, I learned to code early and learned to build websites when I was a kid. And so I was, I was part of the, that kind of internet culture. And I remember what it felt like to, you know, make a website and, and, and throw it online and, you know, have people come to it and, you know, interact with those people and talk with them and, uh, I had many experiences growing up where uh, I, I, I built web apps and, and, and applications with people all over the world uh, from my computer, and we coordinated everything. And when, when I saw DAOs, it felt like that. You know, it felt like, uh, oh, this is this this feels like that 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 kind of interaction where you uh, you can you can use the internet to bring a group of people together to to coordinate themselves in, into doing something. Now, you know, back then we did it with email and PayPal and, and things like that. And, and now we, we get to do it with, with blockchains. Now, the, the thing that, that, I'm, that I'm just so curious about is um, how are DAOs going to surprise us? And so we have, by and large, been thinking about DAOs from within the current paradigms of, of thinking. Uh, and you look at something like Aragon, it's very much designed in that way. You, you look at it, it looks like the operating system of a company. You have, you know, members and payrolls and tokens and voting and proposals and, you know, all of those kind of typical organization things. But then you look at other things like Moloch DAO, uh, which is a, a super simple DAO with a, a clearly defined set of rules. It, it's a very stupid system, but it 
it, it also is incredibly flexible because of how simple and lightweight it is. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like a standard DAO model that is now being used for many, many different things. And a Moloch DAO is, is little more than an economic coordination system. You know, you put assets in this DAO. When you contribute assets to the DAO, you get voting shares in the DAO on how those assets are used. And then if you don't like how the votes are worked or, you know, if there's a vote that looks like it's going to pass and you don't like it, you can do a rage quit and take your money out of the DAO and then not participate in that decision. And that's it. That's all it does. But that allows for a, a, a big universe of things that you can do with just those simple rules that don't quite exist in the traditional model. You can't do that uh, with a company quite quite the same way. You can't I mean, you could if you wrote those features into a contract, but there's no way you can make it work at a global scale with anonymous people and, you know, automated payments and so on. It, it's a very painful thing to try and, you know, create the same mechanisms within a, a traditional paper legal structure. Um, and so the idea that that with DAOs, we, we collapse those, not those functions, but we, we, we make uh, organizations more efficiently. We, we also increase the kind of design space of, of organizations. I'm just watching very closely at the, at the kinds of things that, that may emerge from, uh, from DAOs as a concept. I think DAOs, when it comes to this question of you know, capital and participation and governance, DAOs are one thing that I, I think will, will be fundamental to crypto in ways that, that are unpredictable today. Um, and NFTs, I, I think, exist in a similar space where uh, a lot of what we're doing with NFTs kind of mirrors things that, that we already know and understand, like collecting things like art and, and things like that. Um, but NFTs as, as a mechanism for transacting in unique information, if you want to think about it and, and, and very abstractly, that has the, the potential to change a lot of, of how we do things like authorizations and even uh, operate transactions in the web. And, and that sounds very impractical, but I'll, I'll describe something that uh, a team that we work with is, is, is kind of thinking about uh, uh, Fortmatic, which builds a key management system for dApps and, and users has been thinking about uh, an authorization scheme that works uh, in, in a, in, w- with an NFT type of mechanism where if, if you think of um, non-fungible tokens as representing, you know, a variety of things, but, but unique things like access or a license or things like that. Um, I think we can kind of build um, uh, uh, systems with NFTs that uh, are kind of hard to imagine today, but as, as carriers of information, transferable carriers of information, uh, it's one of those things that I feel old because I struggle to imagine uh, how we could create brand new things with them, but that I'm sure a young entrepreneur from a random part of the world who's coming at this you know, at, as a teenager and doesn't have a preconception of, of, of the world or doesn't have the world's paradigms drilled into them in quite the same way will come up with with innovative way innovative ways of using them. So I already feel like the old generation where when I try to imagine things that we can do with crypto, I feel like I'm inventing Alta Vista, where I take the things that I know and I'm I'm putting them on crypto, whereas the younger generations are are coming up with things that that I frankly can't come up with, but that I'm trying to stay close to. What do you think about 2100 or broadly? Speaking? Ah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I love it. Why, why you find that's interesting and, and yeah. broadly what that type of stuff could, could lead to. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that, I, that I'm thinking about when I'm glad that you mentioned it because it's, 
it's an example that I like to use of, of the kinds of things that just you, you, you couldn't quite do before. And 2100, I, I, love, I love to use that one as in the context of this, this notion of capital, uh, where, you know, backing up a little bit, I, I went on a, on a monologue about capital, um, but I didn't touch upon something that is key uh, when it comes to the relationship between capital and crypto, which is that um, you heard me say that that you can't get rid of capital, that capital is this kind of um, you know, permanent uh, force in society. Uh, there's, there's a distinction between capital and capital instruments. And, and this one, I, I, I kind of came about in, 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 a, in an odd way, but basically the capital instruments are, are, are abstractions on top of capital uh, and, and specifically tradable abstractions. Uh, capital is control, um, but capital instruments are the mechanisms that we use to encode that control and then to make it tradable. So to, to make that a little more tangible, the capital of a company uh, or of a standard normal company is represented with equity shares of stock as the instrument. Uh, so the shares of stock in a company are the instrument for its capital. And the thing that, that you trade and the thing that you transact are the shares of stock, right? That's how you transfer capital from one person to the other. You do it through the instrument. Uh, but the instrument is a social abstraction. We create instruments as legal contracts and we use courts to back them up and all of those things. And so that's, that's what gives them uh, their, their functionality. And also another important thing about instruments is that because instruments make capital tradable, uh, you can't price capital effectively, nor you can exchange capital if you don't have instruments for it. And, and the reason this is so important is that um, going back to the notion that we have many, many different kinds of capital. When you look at it, we have a lot more types of capital than we have uh, types of capital instruments. And what I mean by that is for things like productive capital, uh, we have instruments like shares of stock and so on. For things like real capital uh, or, you know, like land or, or buildings and so on, we have property rights or, prop or property titles uh, that are the instrument that represents that. So if you sell me a building or a house, what allows you to do that is the fact that you have a property title. Uh, that's the instrument that you actually give me. And by transferring that instrument to me, I now have that capital. Um, but for something like political capital, for instance, it exists. We can observe it, but there's no instrument for political capital. There's no tool or device that we can use to trade it. And because there's no way for us to trade it, there's no way for a market to emerge around it who can price it and value it. And there's also no way for that capital to be more broadly distributed because you can't, you can't exchange it. You can't take it from one person and, and give it to another one. And so all of the other forms of capital that we've been discovering over the last several decades don't have instruments attached to them. Uh, and so you, you think of social capital and I use the example of, of Instagram followers or, you know, social media followers, that it forms part of your social capital, but there's, there's no, no uh, instrument around it. And you look at something like 2100, and it provides a tool for creating an instrument for your social capital. And that's the kind of thing that blows my mind, because what, when, when you think of, uh, of blockchains and crypto and all of these technologies as uh, tools for creating capital instruments, then the the space of experimentation or the, the, the kind of thought space expands by quite a bit, or at least it does for me. And so what, what I want to uh, encourage people or, or, or developers and entrepreneurs to think about is what kinds of instruments they can design 
for different kinds of capital that exist out there uh, that allow us to create uh, new markets and, and, and new kinds of tools and devices. And 2100 is a perfect example of a new design for a, an instrument for social capital uh, that, that we cannot recreate with uh, paper and legal contracts in quite the same way. Totally. It, one of the things you mentioned in, in a previous interview is um, that you, you, you guys do pre-mortems. If, if the crypto space doesn't work, uh, why not? And, and, and I'm curious, and you also wrote sort of, you know, the Ethereum as, as IBM post. Um, you know, some people sometimes say, hey, Bitcoin is the, is the MySpace or the, or the Alta Vista. But there's another group of people that says, you know, we should look at these things through the lens of the history of money, perhaps through an Austrian economics lens rather than the history of, of software, history of technology. And that there's a sort of fundamental different implications uh, that that right emerge from those different lenses. I'm I'm curious how you would respond to that. Does that do you see it differently? Um, so I haven't thought about about that notion that you should think about things from money history versus technology history. On you know, I, I think you have to do all of the above. I you know, I this is just my immediate reaction, but I think in general blanket statements or single points of view are less useful than more holistic approaches. And so I find it more useful to think about all these things from all of those perspectives, right? Combine the history of technology, combine the history of software with the, with economic history, with uh, societal history. Uh, something that I spend a lot of time going back to is uh, generational history. There's a bunch of theory and work that's been done on how generations work and uh, the the marquee book there is is a book titled Generations by two researchers of uh, the names uh, Strauss and Howie and uh, these are the guys who came up with the term millennial in the 1980s. They basically went back through every single American generation and mapped out you know all of the different features uh, of, of each generation, what was going on in society, their opinions on various institutions like government, marriage, war, uh, kids, all of those things. A history of generations doesn't seem like it's very useful in the context of crypto, um, but it actually turns out to be super useful because you what you learn from that is how society's moods change over time, how they tend to change, and what are the the clues and cues that that let you know that there are uh, generational shifts occurring. And so when you when you bundle when you bring in that perspective, then you start to see how much of crypto is a is a function of generational change, for instance, and so that that that's kind of my general approach to things. You you you're, you're better off grabbing from multiple points of view rather than, than focusing on just one, because then you you might miss the bigger picture. That, that that makes sense. What do you think we've learned about moats in crypto or, or business model or, or value capture across different layers or levels of the stack? Or sort mm. of, you wrote in your thesis a long time ago. You know, value capture doesn't mean investment returns. But when you sort of unpack the things we've we've learned there, or how you think about that. yeah, so usually when that when that question is asked of me, it's a, it's it's in the context of value capture between protocols and applications, and it goes back to posts called fat protocols that argued that protocols capture more value than applications, and in crypto, uh, whereas on the web we had applications capture more more value than protocols. More recently, I've been more vocal about. Uh, one of the most common uh, misconceptions or misinterpretations of of that idea, which is really confusing value capture with investment returns. And, and I think a lot of people took the 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 idea that protocols 
uh, capture more value as protocols capture more investment returns or there's only investment returns at protocols or um, you know other other misconclusions stemming from from that that misunderstanding um, and really value capture uh, is is less of uh, an investment metric so much as it is you know a measure of total market value or market available it's more when I think of, of value capture across layers I'm thinking more in the context of how is market value distributed over a supply chain or over a value chain let's call it a value chain if you think of protocols and applications as kind of being part of a crypto value chain uh, or the different layers than the distribution of investment returns uh, investment returns have a lot more to do with uh, your cost basis how much you've invested and more to do with growth rate, growth rates uh, of, of the thing that you've invested in or, or things like that uh, has to do with how much ownership you have over over your investment if it's like a company or even a network and those things work very very differently between protocols and applications so that's one thing that that is uh, important to understand uh, when when we talk about uh, where value accrues in, in in one place versus another one thing uh, from from more of the learning side of things uh, and you mentioned moats to, to understand value more, more, more properly, I wrote a post on, on how to think about value that goes back to some basic economic principles, uh, and particularly one in specific, uh, which is that uh, at, at equilibrium in a market, marginal benefit equals marginal cost. And there's a lot of debate behind that principle that it's not worth going into. But the basic premise is that costs are strong determinants of value in a market. And from an economics perspective, and you can think of as there being a direct relation, think of it as there being a direct relationship between uh, value accrual and cost accrual in a way, uh, in the sense that whoever takes on most of the costs then necessarily demands most of the value uh, to cover those costs. Um, and to make it a little bit more tangible, we can start thinking of costs more as investments and costs and investments. Um, uh, end of determining value uh, in, in the sense that if you if you incur a cost and it doesn't come with the uh, with the appropriate amount of value, it's an unprofitable cost to take, and so you wouldn't un- un- incur that cost. And when you start thinking about it as investments, if if a layer uh, of of a of a value chain requires more investment to operate because it is more costly to operate, then more value has to go to that layer. In the context of crypto, the way this shows up is protocols and crypto networks are much more expensive and costly to run than the applications, meaning it's much more expensive to operate the Bitcoin network as a whole. When you think about all of the costs uh, that everyone in the Bitcoin network is taking on in order to make that service work is orders of magnitude greater than the costs of a wallet riding on top of Bitcoin or even uh, a large company like Coinbase writing on top of Bitcoin. Uh, when you think about all the investment that has to go into making that network work. Um, and so by, by necessity, most of the value has to go to where most of the costs are to maintain equilibrium. And so that, that is what ends up determining uh, value distribution between the two. But just because something captures more value does not mean that it captures more investment returns. Uh, and, and so a lot of what we've been doing, actually, recently, we've been investing more at the application layer of crypto as the opportunities there 
be uh, materialize and, and the infrastructure becomes uh, uh, better and we're getting user experiences that are now only now uh, uh, reaching kind of web status. Uh, and so we're seeing lots of opportunities there. And by the way, I also think there's plenty of opportunities at the protocol layer. And most of our investments are in crypto networks in the protocol layer. Um, but there is an important distinction between those two concepts that as an investor, you have to understand. And, and you wrote this post, uh, you know, web versus crypto service models. And I'm curious, we can unpack that. And a couple of questions I have around it is one, just to solidify, what were sort of the big things that the web was missing that, that crypto brought? Was, was it identity and, and, and sort of uh, payments? Uh, is one question. The other is sort of, you know, what's going to be the equivalent of what aggregation theory was for the web for crypto in terms of sort of the, the dominant paradigm of, of how, mm-hmm. uh, how, how, how these things make money? Yeah. So I think the one thing, there's lots of things that crypto brought, but the one thing is uh, it's very subtle. It's uh, the shift towards public private key based identity and authentication and authorization. Uh, the idea that a transaction does not happen uh, for a user unless that user has explicitly approved that transaction. And, and this was created for Bitcoin, right? And so it's uh, the notion that you have your public key and you have your private key. Um, uh, if you use a centralized wallet, uh, or a centralized custodian provider like Coinbase, then you've delegated control of that private key and Coinbase can theoretically make transactions for you without, without your permission if, if, if they decided to do that. Um, but if you use a, a non-custodial wallet, uh, which, which is a term that, that we like to use, uh, where you all remain in control of, of your private key, only you can authorize transactions on, on your, on your Bitcoin, uh, wallet. And uh, now if you take that, that framework or that idea or that paradigm and expand it to uh, consumer information services more broadly, it's this notion that you can be interacting with an application, but that application cannot touch your data or manipulate it unless you've authorized it or given it explicit permission to, to do so. And that is something that is, does not exist on the web. On the web, we kind of have to trust that that the services we use are managing our, our data correctly. And it's very clear to pretty much everyone that we can't, we can't rely on that trust. And this to me is, is probably the most powerful thing that crypto introduces to the kind of online consumer services model, uh, where it's no longer um, a model where the application, because they are in control of the data and because they are in control of the production of the service, are effectively in control of everything. And we get all kinds of problems that emerge from that, everything from fake news to you know the, the latest controversies around political advertising and things like that. In the crypto model, uh, where we have uh, the opposite of that, where we have decentralized production and we have non-custodial data models where it's up to the user to decide how they want their data to be managed. Uh, you can uh, choose to use Coinbase. You can choose to use Bitcoin directly anonymously and, you know, in a self-sovereign way. It's up to you. Bitcoin itself doesn't care. Uh, but you, the user, can choose your interface to the same service. And that is a big deal because you can be using, you know, Coinbase and I can be using a ledger wallet and you and I can transact with each other. Uh, you, you expand that out from beyond Bitcoin 
And it, it's the equivalent in, say, a social network would be uh, that imagine Facebook were a crypto network. You could be using one interface for it. I could be using another interface for it. Uh, that caters to our different needs uh, in, in different ways. But you and I can still communicate and transact with each other, even though we're not on the same uh, application. And that, I think, ends up kind of changing uh, the power scales uh, between users and services, where all of a sudden now users have a lot more leverage over application operators uh, than they did in the past. And even in, in, in centralized models or semi-centralized models, uh, like uh, a lot of what uh, keeps uh, Coinbase honest, for instance, is the fact that you can you can leave. Uh, you can just take take your assets out, put them in another service, and still have access to the networks and, and the services. Uh, it's something that you can't do with PayPal, for instance. Uh, if you if you rely on PayPal, if we want to use kind of a, a similar analogy, yeah, you can take your money out, but once you're out of the system, you can't access PayPal the network, and PayPal the network is the thing that's useful. But it works that way on the web because we have these centralized and custodial data models. Uh, but in crypto, there's a lot more mobility for the user. Totally. So, so we only have a few minutes left. So I want to uh, get sort of my my last two questions out, and you can answer uh, you know whichever whichever ones you you find interesting or, or go deep as you see fit. So, so one is the. Um, and both of these questions sort of emerged out of your uh, podcast uh, that you did on the Jason Horowitz podcast. Uh, w- one question is about, it uh, relates to your desire to collapse the distinction between capital and currency. And there's this argument for every protocol having its own utility token that's functioned both as a medium of exchange and as ownership of the network. And I'm curious if you still hold that view, if there's room for distinction between sort of the owner operator class and the consumer, you know, which is more optimal, why? Personally, I think that's sort of the biggest experiment we're running in crypto or one of them is whether consumers value ownership or whether it's a cognitive burden, too much of a cognitive burden to make your users investors. That's sort of, yeah. Yeah. One, one big question. The next one, and then I'll let you go is, um, is, is on on-chain governance and, and basically, you know, most evolutionary fit networks are those that can adapt to change. When does it make sense if at all to, to innovate on governance? Do protocols need to be governed by community at inception or is it better to have strong product leader to drive decision-making at the outlet? You know, when should teams prioritize this? I'll answer both because the second one is is kind of quick, which is that it it depends uh, and it, it's kind of a cop out answer. But there's there's cases in which starting out with the you know full community on chain governance thing makes sense, and there's cases where starting centralized and progressively decentralized, we have the full range of approaches in our portfolio, and it, I think it's impossible to make a blanket statement about how these things work. Uh, so, for example. Uh, our investment in Decret, uh, which has been very much built from the ground up to be self-sovereign and to have this kind of uh, community governance functions built in from the beginning, it's for the for the mission they have, they could only start that way. They couldn't start in another way. Otherwise, uh, for their 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 uh, specific situation, it, it wouldn't have worked. On the other hand, uh, the, the opposite extreme is uh, our investment in Erasure, which is a project by a company called Numerai that uh, built a centralized uh, system uh, that uses crypto and then built uh, a designer protocol called Erasure that is a decentralized version of Numerai. Numerai, by the way, is a, is a, um, a hedge fund that's managed by uh, an anonymous community of, of data scientists that s- submit uh, stock market predictions to Numerai and then get paid in Numeraire, which is Numerai's token. And that was a centralized system. And 
Numerai started out as a very, very centralized system, then added a layer of crypto, became more decentralized, and then progressively now has evolved into Erasure, which is a uh, a, a much more decentralized or fully decentralized version of Numerai. And, and so you can have that progression. You can go from being a very centralized company uh, to progressively decentralizing. You can stay hybrid. Um, so I don't think there's a right answer there. Uh, I think it depends on your mission. If you're trying to be global money, then starting out uh, as a more community-owned and operated network is probably going to be better for you. Uh, the closer you are to the consumer, uh, the more you can probably get away with some centralization uh, or more centralization, uh, at least in the beginning. But ultimately, I think how decentralized you are ends up determining the scale of the network. And, and the, the reason uh, I think that is that the more centralized it is, the harder it is for people to commit and invest in it uh, because you know it, it has to do with uh, the control that you have over that financial commitment. Uh, venture capitalists care a lot about control. For example, it's one of the things we, we fight the most about. Fight's the wrong word, but... Uh, we worked the most around when we were structuring deals. And I think the same goes for uh, for other kinds of investments. On the separation of, of currency and capital, I that that's a that's a sensitive topic for me because I uh, I get really nervous when when people uh, propose designs that precisely separate currency and capital, where with you know good intentions, protocol designers or cryptoeconomic designers will We'll, we'll try to create these two token systems, kind of trying to solve the same problem that led us to the, to the, to the setup that we have today, where some people are in capital and some people are in currency. It does help bring some scale and stability, uh, to the system. Cause it is true that, you know, people don't like volatility and things like that. And so a lot of well-intentioned designers say, okay, we'll put the governance and control and ownership token over here. And this is the other token number two that people can use to consume the service uh, or, you know, maybe use another token. So, for example, some networks or systems will design themselves in such a way that um, there's the native kind of staking token or control token. But then, you know, you might use DAI or Ether or another token to actually consume the service and they make it work that way. And, you know, that that's that's fine. And that works and it's not, I don't have, you know, I don't think it's, it's uh, inherently bad, but I get a little nervous because I think it may end up recreating the same dynamics that we have today where within those systems, uh, you would end up with a relatively small group of people who have all the control in the network. Uh, whereas uh, all of the users don't have any of that. And, you know, that's okay, but it doesn't feel like, it, it doesn't feel like an, an like an evolution from where we are today, uh, where at least my personal focus, as I mentioned before, is I want to spread capital as broadly as possible. And I don't think those designs do that. I think those designs end up, end up concentrating capital the same way that the current capital instruments concentrate capital. On the other hand, if you have a system where uh, the capital is also used to transact, you you now introduce a different kind of dynamic where capital under the current instrument designs is actually incentivized to concentrate around itself. It's one of the reasons why we see concentration of capital increase over time. Um, because when you don't have a reason to dispose of it, uh, then you're not going to do so. And so there, the what ends up happening is that less and less and less capital is available out there for people to acquire as it becomes more concentrated. Now, when you kind of mix the two back together and you kind of rebundle money if we want to think about it that way, 
uh, all of a sudden, uh, if you if you own a piece of the system and the system grows in value as more people use it, but in order to use it, people have to have the capital in the system, then now your incentive is for more people to have it uh, so that more people can use it so that the value of your investment can grow as opposed to the current capital instruments where your incentive is for the system to grow, but for your ownership of the capital to increase. And so there, I think that by, by combining the functions, we get to design incentives that promote the distribution of capital rather than promote the concentration of capital. And promoting the distribution of capital has to do with that kind of uh, feature where uh, the only way for value to grow is for more people to have the capital. Uh, and this, by the way, also answers a question that you had earlier about some of the kind of paradoxes or, or, or things, unexpected things that we might find with crypto uh, and as it relates to value and value capture. And there is one thing that I don't think many people appreciate, which is that when value is more broadly distributed, there's actually more value in the absolute that is created. And so one, one thing that I, I think will, will catch people by surprise is how much new value we get to create by spreading value more broadly as opposed to concentrating. Uh, I think that's a perfect place to uh, full circle r- r- wrap our podcast. <laughs> uh, my guest today has been uh, Joel Minegro. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for, for coming to the podcast and, and for people who uh, loved listening and, and want to go deeper. Where might you point them? Obviously, there's the, the fantastic placeholder blog and, and, uh, and Twitter. Yeah. Any any other plugs? Anything upcoming? We that, that's about it. We put everything on our blog at placeholder.vc, and it's key to what we do. Uh, both Chris and I came from firms that uh, were kind of founded on the basis of sharing your thoughts and insights and research, uh, and so it's it, it it's what we try to do on the placeholder blog. Uh, so that would be the best way to stay on top of the our latest thinking. Fantastic, Joel. This has been a great episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 